making, making contact, making, 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 making contact. I'm Laura Flynn, and you're listening to Making Contact. Immigration comes up in every U.S. presidential election cycle. It's been that way pretty much since the dawning of the country. In keeping with that national tradition, immigrants throughout history have also been the target of racist rhetoric and efforts to exclude them from voting and political influence. And the 2016 elections have proven no different. This edition of Making Contact is part one of our special series examining how immigrants are responding and participating in elections and politics today. From dreamers in Arizona to Muslims in Michigan, we'll meet immigrant communities upholding democracy. We'll also have a conversation with the Brennan Center for Justice president and author of The Fight to Vote, Michael Waldman, about how immigrants throughout history have expanded the right to vote. Civil disobedience helped dreamers inject new blood into the immigration reform movement in the U.S. It resulted in the creation of DACA, or Deferred Action, in 2012. This election cycle, dreamers are working for presidential candidates, and in one city, dreamers are pushing the envelope again. Youth that can't vote are making the voice of the Latino community heard in local politics and at the ballot box. Valeria Fernandez has the story in Phoenix, Arizona. It's the Martin Luther King Day Parade in downtown Phoenix. Elizabeth Perez makes her way in sneakers, braving a cheerful crowd, as she chases after her boss, Councilwoman Kate Gallego, to give her an update on upcoming meetings. She loves her job as a scheduler for Gallego, but it wasn't an easy road. When she started in 2014, constituents complained. A constituent showed up and he had in his hand the, uh, a newspaper article the constituent is Pat Bent. He walked up to the podium at the city council meeting. Dustin Gardner put in a newspaper on um, January 3rd, 2014. He said that our Kate Caligo over here has hired two dreamers to run her. All right, so Pat, company. you got you to gotta keep the eye... The Phoenix Council members were later asked, should Dreamers be allowed to work for the city? Six out of nine council members, including the mayor, came out in support. For Perez, it felt like the first time someone stood up for her. She's 25 now and considers herself a Dreamer, like other youth that came to the U.S. without documents, in her case, when she was a toddler. For most of her life, she didn't have a work permit, but she does now. She got it through DACA in 2012. That's President Obama's executive order. The Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. Over the next few months, eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. I mean, who would have thought that I was going to end up at the city of Phoenix after I had just been working as a house cleaner, right? Um, let alone, like, who would have thought that after being undocumented for so long, I now was going to be working there because I had DACA. For Perez, it was a bittersweet moment. Her Mexican mother raised her and her three other sisters on her own after their father was deported. 
She supported them by cleaning houses. I ask her sometimes, like, Mom, like, did you ever think that we would be this big, right? Like, I say grandotas, right? Like, if we would ever be this big. And when I say big, I mean, like, that we would grow up to be the women that we are now, right? And my mom says no. She's like, I wanted you guys to stay little forever. But now look at you. You don't need me anymore. Working at the city of Phoenix is not just an administrative job in a nice suit for Perez. It's a chance to work with families like hers while she's not keeping tabs on the councilwoman's busy agenda. There's one at like noon, but then there, and then you've got like 30 minutes for lunch unless you want to eat lunch during that time. And then there's one right before, right after the Syrian community meeting. We had that buffer time because sometimes they go over. That's councilwoman Kate Gallego. In her 30s, she's the youngest member of city council. And for Perez, she's a role model. Gallego said she hired her because she was outstanding. She knows things about our community that people who have been here longer don't know, really down in the grits, paying attention, listening to people one at a time. I think because so often she didn't have people to listen to her story or hear, be able the ability to tell the whole story, that she really takes the time and pays attention to everyone individually and wants to know their stories, because she has a real appreciation that every situation may be more complex. Eli Perez was the first DACA recipient to work for the city. Attorneys had to be consulted. The process itself wasn't complicated. It was the perceptions. In Arizona, former Republican Governor Jen Brewer sued the federal government to keep dreamers from having driver's licenses. But those perceptions have changed. Ellie's in a very visible position at the city. She works regularly with elected officials at the city, but also at other levels of government. And she puts a human face for some people who've never met anyone who are here through deferred action. Perez first met Gallego in 2012. She was involved in voter registration that helped the councilwoman get elected. She's part of a generation shaped by Team Awesome. It's a group of mostly undocumented youth, dreamers. Their claim to fame, they mobilized Latino voters in a low voter turnout district in South Phoenix. They were crucial in getting the councilwoman's husband, Democrat Ruben Gallego, elected to Congress in 2010. I'm thinking these kids are so are going to be so unorganized. None of them are going to know what's happening. Like, they don't know what's happening. And I walk in, and it is this, like, it's just, like, work after work after workstation, right? There's lit in one side. Someone's counting packets. Someone's counting lit. Other people are cutting lists. Someone's entering data. It's like this little kind of like a little sweatshop of canvassing happening in there. One of the masterminds behind it was Anthony Valdovinos, a young, energetic dreamer. He turned to voter organizing because his dreams of joining the military were short-lived due to his lack of documents. He felt he had nothing left to lose. When I was 20 years old and I knew I could not work legally, when I knew I couldn't drive legally, when my parents were both afraid of me being out and about, uh, and then having to pay an enormous cost for school, Nobody, you know, in the United States should feel that way. It's, it's the country uh, that everybody wants to be in because of our freedom. Valdovinos is the founder of La Machine, a business to mobilize Latino voters. We went from being canvassers and organizers, neighborhood organizers, to field directors, uh, and now 
we're running our own or now we're running our own organizations that are that are built to be a powerhouse uh, and it's all driven towards the actual needs that we see in our communities. Presidential contenders have taken notice of the Dreamers' ability to recruit those voters too. Prominent Dreamer activist Eddie Candiola works as a Latino outreach strategist for Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders. And Lorela Praeli, former organizer from United We Dream, works in Hispanic outreach for Hillary Clinton. We're now part of electoral key races. Uh, and I think that that's truly the power of our, of our organizing, is that we have accepted the challenge that Latinos need to be mobilized to turn up in the election results. Yet, Valdovinos believes that voting participation of Latinos means nothing without accountability. So the fact that this moment was forced and that they saw community power and community pressure that we were able to force this moment, is, it's really incredible, it's really important. And that's Viridiana Hernandez, also a founding member of Team Awesome, speaking to a crowd of activists outside the city of Phoenix building. She once mobilized voters as a dreamer. Now she also gets council members to vote for policies that serve all of their constituents, with or without papers. These campaigns uh, across the city, across the country, are really changing the narrative that the Latino vote in the Latino community overall and the migrant community can be taken for granted. Hernandez was active in getting several Latinos council members elected. Now she's part of a movement to get the city of Phoenix to approve the creation of a city ID that could help undocumented immigrants feel safe when contacting the police. Communities are hurting every day being separated, living in fear, being deported. And everyone from school board members all the way to congressional members play a role in that. Classes out, students sip coffee and relax on a sunny afternoon at Arizona State University in Tempe. Wearing mirrors, sunglasses, Perez rushes through. Now time for coffee, it's 3.30 p.m. She turns on country music, her favorite, to break traffic on the way to City Hall. Every time my friends get in my car, they, they freak out and they're just like, Ellie, you need to change the station. I might be the only dreamer that listens to country music. <laughs> I'm sure there's others, and if there are, I would really like to know. <laughs> Not long ago, Perez couldn't attend the university due to state policies that made it more expensive for dreamers like her. Now she's a full-time student majoring in justice studies because she wants to be a labor law attorney. It's a lot to juggle between her voting mobilization efforts and her job at the city. It's a sense of responsibility to myself and responsibility to them. And I mean, people, you know, have believed in me and, and pushed me to keep going. And I feel like if I stopped, it wouldn't just be letting them down, it'd be letting myself down as well. Sometimes she dreams about being able to vote. She says she'll host a party with blue, red, and white dreams. Others died for that right, she says. And it's something she wouldn't take for granted. For Making Contact, this is Valeria Fernandez in Phoenix, Arizona. We'll be right back. For more information about this or past shows, or to make a difference by supporting our work, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact.
Welcome back. Religion can play a big role in politics. Many religious institutions work to mobilize their members to vote. Politicians like Ted Cruz have used churches as a place to announce their campaigns. But for a while, members of the Muslim community of western suburbs in Canton, Michigan, were unsure about what role their mosque should play in politics. Now that's changing. As anti-Muslim rhetoric has increased, members of the mosque are becoming more politically involved. Renee Gross reports in Canton, Michigan. I had a friend, she came up to me, and she was like, you know, I was wondering, is, is ISIS like Islam? Is it real Islam? High school student Hadisha Mohammed is one of the many people who came to the Muslim community of Western Suburbs Mosque to talk about Islamophobia tonight. That's because tonight is February 12, 2016, the year anniversary of the shooting of three Muslim students near the University of North Carolina. Yasir Kogali facilitates the discussion. We have to start with being able to talk to each other. And that is where we have to start. Since the attack, though, hateful rhetoric has increased. Hanina Ekment is a concerned mother at the mosque. When my son comes to me and says, it really doesn't matter what you do, they're going to hate us anyway. But there's a byproduct of the hate. I think his mobilizing a lot of people makes our job a lot easier. That's Dr. Muzamil Ekmet. He grew up coming to this mosque and has tried hard to make sure that people know the politicians in the community. This hasn't always been easy. Many of the people who first started the mosque were immigrants who came here in the 70s and 80s. They didn't always have the time to meet with politicians or volunteer for campaigns. Muzamil knows this firsthand. He's the child of immigrants. It's a cliche to say, boy, my parents came with nothing uh, off the boat or off the airplane and worked hard. And, but, in for, you know, that is really the truth. They came, they're so focused on making a living, making sure that their kids had a good education uh, and were safe that I don't think they were that focused on politics. Neither was the mosque. Again, in the early 2000s, there was still a lot of uh, discussion as to whether Muslims really, sh uh, the American Muslim community really should get involved in politics. And politics was thought of as distasteful, you thought of as, you know, you'd have to compromise values. It was difficult for members to decide what values they should champion. Similar to other religious communities, they had both conservative and progressive ideals. It's very tough to figure out which ones take a priority. Are you going to fight against homelessness, make sure everyone has affordable health care? Are you going to uh, go after fighting abortion or same-sex marriage or, or things like that. A lot of the community simply stayed out of the political realm. Then everything changed. It happened during September 11th and, uh, uh, and the uh, horrible tragedies of that time. The media was shining a negative light on Islam, but members of the mosque wanted to show the public that they were engaged American citizens. Only they found their presence wasn't always welcomed in politics. When people try and enter the traditional Republican parties and the caucuses and the party meetings, and we've had people who've done this, uh, they are alone. Uh, they're often uh, ostracized. Uh, they clearly are left out. Um, and uh, uh, even though they might share some specific conservative values, uh, it's, they are not felt like they belong and they're not welcome. Some feel these experiences in the Republican Party are shifting the mosque to the left. Now they're becoming very liberal. That's Sibira Ekmet. She's Muzamil's mother. Sibira has strong feelings about who she wants to vote for this year. 
So, of course, not the Republican this time. Siberia has voted Republican in the past. In 2000, she voted for Bush. They shared many of the same conservative values, like being against same-sex marriage. Of course, it's, it's not an Islamic value, of course not. But Siberia wasn't happy with Bush's foreign policy. She wasn't happy about how he treated minorities or poor people, and she wasn't happy with the economy. Because of the war and all those things, uh, it was really worst. For the average people, it really pinched your, you know, pocket. Siberia voted for Obama in 2008. She's been pleased with his presidency. Now she's voting for Hillary Clinton. She, being a woman, she's very sensitive to the issues of the families and raising the kids and education and economy and all those things. And second thing is she's very experienced in the foreign policy. Siberia still disagrees with Hillary on some points, but she says she has to look at the bigger picture. And for right now, Republicans are much worse. To me, I think they're creating hate. They didn't even stop Donald Trump being a presidential presidential nominee. He shouldn't be able to create the hate in this country. Like It's not good for anybody, not for Muslim, not for Jews, not for Christian. Fighting back against the hate is a major reason why Siberia gets involved. We have to go to the town halls meeting so they know it. They know Muslims are here too, and uh, we, we are the normal people. We are not, you know, we are not terrorists, and we have the rights too. The one who, who come here to live here, this, this is our country. This is our country, though we have a different religion. As CNN projects, that Donald Trump will be the winner of the New Hampshire Republican primary. Dr. Syed Taj sees America as his home too. He is watching the New Hampshire primary results with his family. For me, the reason I entered politics was that I'm not different than any one of you. Taj was born in India and immigrated to the United States in the 70s. But he found few people like him represented in politics. So in 2007, he ran for city council. I was everything myself, campaigner. So I'll come home 5 o'clock, put it in my walking shoe, and I start going knocking doors. Some people said, what are you? I said, Democrat. They shut the door on me. Some people said, oh, you're a doctor. Oh, we like to vote for you. Another said, normally we vote only conservative, but since you are at my door, we'll vote for you too. Taj ended up being the first ever Muslim elected to his town's city council and the first Democrat to be elected there in 30 years. He did so well that he decided to run for Congress in 2012. He was leading in the polls until... What do we really know about Syed Taj? We know he relies on political support and funding from the Democratic Socialists of America. We know his extremist contributors include the Council for American-Islamic Relations, named as an unindicted co-conspirator in funding the terrorist group Hamas. And we know Syed Taj wants to advance Muslim power in America. Syed Taj, too extreme for Michigan, too extreme for... Taj says the ad took quotes out of context to play on the public's fear of Muslims. Even though Taj had been leading in the polls, he ended up losing the election. But he isn't stopping. He's running for Canton supervisor this year. As for the mosque, it isn't slowing down either. Just as the uh, black churches were so integral to the civil rights era in mobilizing people, the mosques are similarly very important in mobilizing the Muslim community. Muzamil is working with the mosque to connect members with politicians and make sure everyone is voting. He's also helping his family do more. 
Last election cycle, he set up his mother at a phone bank to make phone calls for a local state representative. He told his mom about a way she could be especially helpful. Why don't you make phone calls? Call your friends up. We have phone lists that they've been able to put together on names that sound Arabic or Indian, and, and they will listen to you more than they listen to some other uh, intern who doesn't speak the language, and that's what they've done. His mother found that when she made these calls, people really did trust her opinion. They said, are you sure this person will be good for us? They're going to represent us. They're not. I said, yes, we did something. You know, we did the interview. We know the person and all these things. Then says, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> this type of political engagement not only helps make a difference in the community, it also makes a difference in the lives of immigrants doing the outreach. Muzamil has seen this with his parents. And when they start to become politically involved and people come to them to ask for votes or feel like they need to send them something in the mail or call them, they're sort of taken aback and say, wow, you really do need me and you really do value me. And I think that has really done, uh, done wonders in getting them feeling more involved, feeling more American. Still, feeling American isn't enough. The members of the mosque know they have to prove they are American to others. At the Islamophobia meeting, there's a consensus among many that this isn't fair. They shouldn't need to prove anything. But for now, they feel they have no other choice. For Making Contact, I'm Renee Gross in Canton, Michigan. Next, I take a drive with Michael Waldman while he's in San Francisco. He talks about efforts throughout history to disenfranchise immigrants and how immigrant communities past and present have fought to uphold democracy in the U.S. I'm Michael Waldman. I'm the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, and I'm the author of the book, The Fight to Vote. And Michael, your new book, The Fight to Vote, details the history of the struggle to expand voting rights in the U.S. from the birth of the nation to the challenges of today. That over a 200-year-old battle includes stories about backlash to waves of new immigrants. How were laws changed to make it harder for immigrants to vote? Well, the kinds of fights we're having today about who can vote, about whether there's voter suppression, about whether their votes count, this isn't new. It's, it's important and it's con controversial, but this is the fight Americans have been having from the very beginning of the country. And it's often been uh, spurred by change in who we are and demographic change. At the very beginning, uh, the, the founders behind closed doors at the Constitutional Convention were worried that immigrants were going to come to the United States and they thought, gee, maybe they ought to make it harder for them to vote. In the end, they didn't. But in the late 1800s, the cities were crowded with immigrants. They were mostly from Europe. They were Irish or Italian uh, and on the West Coast from China. And there were all kinds of moves taken then to make it harder for immigrants to vote. In the 2016 presidential elections, immigrants continue to be the target of some presidential hopefuls. How do you think this affects how different immigrant communities participate in politics? Uh, a lot of times, uh, immigrant communities, where there might be low participation rates, get energized because they feel under attack. We've seen this uh, in the South, where the attack on voting rights has been a mobilizing force for African Americans in a place like North Carolina. The big question now is there's so much um, uh, ugly language about immigrants in this election, whether it's talking about Mexican immigrants being uh, 
rapists the way Donald Trump said or the attacks on Muslim immigrants by so many people or the Muslim community where people have been living here for decades. Um, this changes who people vote for and how much they vote. People think it might be a motivating force for greater registration and participation in the Latino community. Um, the Muslim community in states like Michigan in the past often was a Republican voting bloc, but the, uh, now the Republican Party is so um, vitriolic in so many parts of the party. Uh, and you have Ted Cruz talking about patrolling Muslim neighborhoods. You have Donald Trump t saying no more immigration, a, a, a halt in, in immigration. That could be a motivating force uh, for organizing, too. People often are motivated more by what a fear of what they might lose than hope for what they might gain. And that might be the case in 2016. Um, and with that, what would you, what changes do you think are needed to improve the U.S. voting and election system? Well, part of the problem we have is that, uh, is that so many aspects of our system are ramshackle. They haven't been updated. It's really not just, we don't have one election nationally. We have not even 50 elections. We have thousands of elections run by different counties and local governments. Um, and there's all kinds of potential for mischief, as we saw in Arizona when they shut down the polling places in a, in a heavily Hispanic Maricopa County, um, something that would not have been allowed by the Voting Rights Act had it been in full force. Um, I think we need to modernize the way we run elections. We need to move to universal automatic voter registration so that everyone who's eligible to vote can vote. Um, that would add 50 million people to the rolls and it would cost less, and it would curb the potential for fraud. Um, I think that there are all kinds of other things we, we should do as well um, to deal with making sure that there's adequate representation for all communities. The Supreme Court just recently ruled to uphold one person, one vote. And this was a case that would have been very bad for immigrant communities because the, um, the, the case had said that uh, non-citizens shouldn't be counted when they draw up the lines for representation. That would have been a disaster. It would have been a big impact. And the Supreme Court uh, unanimously said, no, everybody needs to be represented. It was actually a very good uh, ruling for immigrants and their, and their interests and their political vision. Um, and uh, I think that uh, one of the things that has to happen is comprehensive immigration reform because there are so many people who are um, here who are working, uh, who deserve the chance to be citizens, uh, and eventually citizenship means the, the right to vote. But there are plenty of people who are eligible to vote who don't register, who don't vote, and uh, their interests are under assault. And so part of the answer has to be that people need to uh, stand up for their own rights. And then any final thoughts? You know, we can wring our hands and be upset that the fight to vote is happening, that the right to vote demands a fight to vote. Um, but in fact, we're always going to be fighting over what our democracy means. This is about the most fundamental things. It's about our ideals. It's about power. And it's not really a surprise that we have to be vigilant. Um, uh, I think that we're either at a moment right now where we could be tipping backwards in a lot of ways making it harder for people to vote. But we, at the same time, could be moving forward with um, reforms to take American democracy to the 
to the 21st century. It's still the vision that brings a lot of people to our shores. Thank you. Michael Waldman is the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, a nonpartisan law and policy institute that works to improve the systems of democracy and justice. His new book, The Fight to Vote, traces the full story for the right to vote from the founders' debates to today's challenges. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Do you have a story to share? Send it to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. For more information about Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Quan Booth, Jasmine Lopez, Monica Lopez, Marie Che, and Manolia Charlatan. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>